Myself podcast. Yeah. Y'all ready to go down this rabbit hole with your boy? <laughs> I know you all, man. That's why you're here. You could be anywhere in the world, but you're right here with me. Good boy. The Welcome back to Thoughts by the Diada podcast. Your favorite podcast, or at least I hope so. Uh, today, I have a special guest with me, uh, freelance writer, podcaster, all-around great Twitter feed, popping, Hugo Torres. <laughs> How you doing, Hugo? Doing fantastic. Thanks for that terrific intro. I'm, I'm glad. I don't know that anybody has ever described me as popping, so that's that's going to be the compliment that I'm going to take away from this whole conversation. Hey, you, you, you're one of the, the people that I actually look forward to seeing what they're going to post on Twitter. My Twitter feed is filled with so much just randomness, you know, people with all the uh, uh, the, the porn that they want to post and just, just, just nonsense. But you're one of the people that, that come with an actual topic or actual perspective when you post something. It's not just it. They're, I, they may be random posts to you, but they're random posts that have uh, a good, a good texture to them. You know what I mean? No, I, I really appreciate that, and I, I think that's uh, first and foremost. I, I'm also very appreciative, of not only of your podcast, but also what it is that you're talking about online. And, and and you're one of the very few people that record on a consistent basis who also interacts with with his audience, or at least tries to interact online. And I, that's a that's such an important component of of this new media that. Um, like I said, I'm grateful for when I find somebody, and then also the fact that you that whenever I post something, oftentimes I wonder: is it resonating? Is it is somebody actually paying attention? Um, and I'm glad to hear that they take the time to to read it, to to digest it, to process it, and on occasion you'll be as kind enough to share a thought with with me uh, back. So that that's very exciting for for somebody like me who likes to write. Yeah, so uh, let's just start off getting into a, a little bit of, uh, of background with you. Um, I don't really want to treat this like an interview, more just a conversation, you know. Sure. So uh, you're from, are you originally from uh, Southern California or did you, you know, migrate there or that's your birthplace? No, I'm 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 from the original original uh, California. I'm from uh, Mexico. I was born in Mexico back in 1977. I came to the U.S. in the early 80s uh, as an immigrant, and uh, my home. Well, they made their home here, and I, for the most part, I've been in Southern California, Angelino, for uh, the majority of my life. Now, um, I've had you know good opportunities to travel mostly throughout the u.s um but you know from around age 10 to you know to 41 now so for 31 years i've been i've been an angelino southern california guy okay well what was life like for you growing up uh in the 80s in, in southern california Holy shit! Okay, so eighties, <laughs> eighties in in LA, and and I and I forgive me because I'm not sure what your uh, where you grew up, and we'll get to that, you know, perhaps. But in eighties in LA, specifically in East Los Angeles, 
things where I always, we didn't know we were poor because everybody around us was the same. You know, it was, it was a hood like anybody else. We were right in the, in the center of Boyle Heights, up there in the hills. Uh, but we were just kids having a great time, enjoying ourselves. We, 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 there wasn't any real knowledge that we were not like, you know, the well-off people. It wasn't until much, much later in my 20s that I discovered that we kind of grew up poor. But one of the challenges that we did have in L.A. during those times is, and, and, and I'm discovering this now, I think, because my parents really isolated us from a lot of the troubles in, in the world because they were concerned about them or they were wary of U.S., uh, of American culture. But we didn't realize that there was a lot, so much police brutality going on in Los Angeles. Uh, we didn't realize that we were immigrants uh, and the, that people considered us less than because we were we were part of the immigrant community. Um, I didn't really know that, that there was a problem being brown in the U.S. until years later because everywhere, everywhere that I grew up, everybody kind of looked the same like I did. Yeah. Um, so 80s in L.A., I think it was a matter of, like I said, you know, being a poor but being happy. It was about having violence all around you, but you not necessarily being touched, you know, uh, by it. Uh, and just for me, more than anything, it was the awkwardness of being a kid from a different land that came down here and trying to catch up with everybody as far as the language is concerned and in the way that, that, that life is in the U.S. I think that it wasn't until the 90s, the early 90s, that I really discovered that, oh, fuck, um, some people don't like me just from the standpoint that I have brown skin or that we're not treated the same by the powers that be, specifically the police department in, in Los Angeles. Or, you know, the concept of like, shit, there's, there's the 90210 kids and they're the pretty ones. There's the one that everybody thinks look all right. And I'm just a homely, skinny Mexican boy um, who got no game. So <laughs> it, it, it was, it's just one of those things where, uh, you you don't like I think I said it earlier before you don't realize that there's a problem with you until life points out that there is one and and then that's one component of my life and then realizing that there was never a problem with me yeah I'm just a, I'm just a person like everybody else it's just a, a matter of perspective and, and what you're used to and what the culture tells you that you're supposed to be versus who you are and that, and, and and being okay with that yeah that's that's something I can relate to in the sense of like I was I was born in uh, North Carolina, and I lived there till I was probably around eight. Then we moved to Ohio. It wasn't until I moved to Ohio where it was really uh, uh, I realized that I was quote unquote different. You know, that was the yeah. first time that that I was put in a situation where I was like the black kid in class, and you know, and the, and the whole being poor. It was a see we we with my family we kind of fluctuated there was times when we was in north carolina we were good because my mom is a welder and so she was working for like subaru or something back then so we were good at that point wow. then when we moved you know it kind of dropped and then it, it's, it's been kind of up and down but i never realized that through that whole uh whole time period until i would say i was probably like 20 years old when i realized like wow i was i was it was kind of broke a lot of times growing up, you know. I never got it, and and definitely the whole part of not realizing you, as you say, like people don't feel people feel a certain way about you just based off you being what they consider different or not the norm. Yeah. 
And I think that's one of the things that I'm realizing a great deal too about is, is the fact that in, in, in it takes you a being older and it takes you having kids of your own to some degree to realize that, man, my mom was, you know, yeah. she wasn't making a lot of money, but there were five of us in my family, two, two younger sisters, myself, my mom, and my dad, and she was able to stretch a buck and kept to keep us all fed and going. And, 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 and I just think sometimes, especially I look at my son, I have a, I have a teenager here at home and I see the amount of my, uh, food that he eats. <laughs> if I was, if I was doing that with my mom uh, or I was doing that, I, I don't know how she kept me fed um, because I could eat like, you know, beast. But yeah. it's, it's that component of realizing, man, you know, I gave my parents a lot of shit back in the day because I didn't think that they knew and in a lot in a lot of ways i don't know that i would have been that i today would be able to survive in if if i were in the same circumstances as they were meaning that they were poor and they were working two jobs and people treated them like shit because they were brown people mm. and the fact that they didn't know the language and that they necessarily weren't uh, legal and through all of that bs they were able to make a life and get three three other kids took into college and, uh, you know, and have educated children. I mean, I, I, I like to think that I'm all that, but I'm not that hardcore. I, I, wasn't, I have not yet been able to um, do what my parents have done in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, so moving up to more current times, you, you, do, some, you do some real estate work, right? Yes, I do. So what's your opinion or how do you feel about this whole uh, influencer-based real estate push that's going on right now because everybody like every every other podcast every other instagram post that you see is somebody telling you of of like pushing how how great of an investment real estate is what do you think about that i i think for one of the first things that i would say is that you got you, you got to know the basics. You got to know the basics of investment, uh, and I think that nine times out of ten, uh, since that takes a, a great degree of study, and you do have to have some trial and error. You also have to have an entrepreneurial mind to a certain degree. That people go into it thinking because it's going to be a quick buck. Yeah. And in all of my years, my over my decade and a half plus of doing real estate, I will tell you that the people that succeed are the ones that are in it for the long haul and who have the the, the, the characteristic of being tough under pressure. Yeah. You know, I, I, a lot of the real estate agents, when they first came in, I, I used to be a manager and a trainer for a long, long time, and I used to recruit talent. And a lot of people that came into the industry, they thought, well, and to a certain degree, the market that they came into it uh, led them to believe that this was the case. But they thought, well, it's easy. All I got to do is show up at an office, do a couple of open houses, and then all of a sudden, boom, I'm going to be making $100,000 a year. The, the reality of it is that in, in a perfect market or in the market that we had in the early 2000s, that could have been possible. But in, uh, if you're going to have longevity, the markets have ups and downs, and you need to be able to cope and deal with all of them. But when the downs are down, they are awful. And if you are going to survive, uh, not only as an individual, but perhaps, you know, as a, as a member of your family, sometimes without making a commission check, without having a sale for two or three months at a time, 
that ain't easy. Yeah. So, for instance, with if, with you, if you have a nine to five and you say, you know what, I I, I saw a, I heard a commercial on the radio and they said that you can make a you know million dollars investing in real estate. If it would tomorrow, would you be able to say, all right, I'm going to quit for a year so that I can invest my time in real estate full time? And um, how long until your own personal finances would be hurting? Yeah. If you're most people. That is not you're not you're not going to start hurting until month eight. You're going to start hurting at month two or three. Yeah, because bills rack up fast. And so I, I think what you, what a lot of folks don't understand is that before you even make that switch into the business, you have to do a lot of pre-planning. You have to sock away some money. You have to have a, a, a real business plan before you start to make that leap. And then also realize that the return on your investment is not going to be immediate. That once you get into the business, it may take some time for you to get some traction and for you to get some sales. After that, it's okay. But but during that year or two where you really struggle to get a foothold, that's a long-ass time to wait yeah. if you don't have the guts to hold, you know, to hold out. There's... Um, Oh, gosh, and I talk about him all the time, but this is a guy that I, and I'll remember his name, but he used to talk, Sig Ziglar, and he used to, I used to, I went to go see him down in LA, one of the sales conferences, he used to have this whole concept of priming the pump, and he would stand there in the middle of the stage with tens of thousands of people around him, he's like, do you guys understand the concept of priming the pump, and he would stand out there with a, one of those old-timey metal pumps, mm -hmm. and we'd explain it to you, that in the very beginning, you have to crank a DAP pump for 15, 20 minutes, because nothing's coming out, nothing's coming out. And sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll think, well, fuck it, you know, I'll just walk away from this pump because nothing's happening. But then eventually, after trial and trial and trial and trial and trial, water starts coming out. And then it's easy. Now the water starts pouring into your bucket. Yeah. And, sick with, and that is one of the most visual, the coolest visual representations of what it takes to be in the business is the fact that it takes a long time of no reward before you actually see, um, you know, you, you, you reap what you sow until you start seeing things come into your bucket. And a lot of folks just don't have the longevity or they don't know that that's what it's going to take. And unfortunately, they end up falling by the wayside. Um, so to answer your question is that social media makes it look like, fuck, I'm just going to throw a filter on my face and going to show up and walk around a few nice houses and I'm going to start making bank. And the reality is, is that it's going to take a lot of, uh, a, a lot of investment, a lot of time, a lot of patience, a lot of frustration, but there is a payoff. There is a payoff. Yeah, priming that pump. That that kind of reminded me of uh, my experiences with podcasting so far. It's like you know, you come you come in and you say, and you uh, create an episode, and you're like, oh, that was freaking awesome. This is gonna hit the roof. Not quite yet. You know what I mean? You gotta uh, you gotta build that base. So. True. Speak, speaking of podcasts, how long have you been into podcasting? Um, about a year and a half. Um, got into it basically by my wife telling me, can you go and go bug somebody else because I'm scared <laughs> of listening to your stories. You know, I've, I've always been a bit, bit of a writer. Um, yeah. I've always enjoyed having these little vignettes and the little things that pop up in my mind. And oftentimes, one of the changes that I've, that I've seen over the the course of the last 20 years or so is that people's attention span are relatively less or and they're also their time available to consume 
uh, information is is shortened and shortened and shortened because you have so much out there that you could possibly be listening to or, or, or reading or seeing. And so, and I've always been like a storyteller. I tell, I, I'm fast when I speak. I try to tell jokes. I try to be funny. I don't always succeed, but I try. And and then I was, we were on a drive back from, you know, vacation. She's like, have you ever just thought about recording yourself and, and putting it out there? And I, and I, went, I told her something to the effect of, well, that's a podcast. It's like, well, why don't you do that? And with my wife, it's very simple. Mm-hmm. And can you make some money? Can you make some money? Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if anybody would be willing to, to, to pay for what I have to say and, and, and hear me out. But if anything, what I'll do is I'll record these stories for my kids or my thoughts for my kids. And one day, if if I go too soon or even if I, even if I last a while uh, and I may need the reminder, I'll have an entire library of back recordings that I could say, oh, yeah, this is what I thought about when I was 41, 42, 43. Yeah, and so that's kind of how the concept came about, and uh, and yeah, I've been doing it for about a year and a half. Yeah, so me, I, I just was I spent a lot, I spent a lot of time alone, you know, uh, for I want to say five, six years or more. I was just living by myself, me and my daughter, you know. Uh, yeah, and then you know I'd be sitting around at night, and I just like have these ideas. Or I'll be watching something, and I'll be like, "Damn, I wish I had somebody I could tell what I'm thinking right now." Sure. And then I discovered podcasts, and it was like, "Boom!" Now I could just I could tell you know the world essentially what I was thinking in this moment. Well, you know, whether or not they consume it, that's that's on them. <laughs> Hello. Since you been podcasting. What are some, or have you ran into any struggles with podcasting? Well, I, th- I think the biggest one, is the, for the first one that I that I encountered, or at least I thought about before I got into it, is that I didn't want to pigeonhole myself too much to a certain concept. And what I mean by that is that I, you know, I was, I, I see a lot of people that are like, well, I'm only going to talk about um, management. Uh, you know, downsizing, uh, you know, your household. I'm only going to talk about those topics. Yeah. And I found that for me, like you can, you can exhaust a topic too much. You can, you, 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 you can always just go back to, 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 to that well to so many times. And so what I wanted to do is to have a podcast or at least a show concept that was broad, that would allow for me to talk about whatever actually happened to come to mind. So again, it's a concept in your mind of not pitching, holding yourself to one thing. The second one was sometimes I just don't feel like it. Mm. You got to realize that your audience expects something from you. Yeah. And, you know, and so averaging a show about once a week, whether it's an interview or an actual show, I'm averaging about once a week. And that's healthy for me. I can keep that up, you know, because I have a very busy life with the kids and, and running a household and, you know, masturbating and everything that's involved with that. <laughs> and so I, w- I want to be able to, like, fit this into time. I also want it to be fun. And so about, I decided, okay, well, about once a week, I'm okay with that. And if I go any longer than that, then I start really getting that itch of, uh, I need to record something. The, 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 the other thing is that the, the other challenge that I think that I've had is, the, 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 and you alluded to it earlier, is the concept of, hey, I'm putting some good shit out there, you know? Yeah. I'm really 
smart and I'm intelligent and I'm funny, or at least I, in my own head, I think I am. Why isn't anybody hearing me? And that's something where you second guess yourself or you think, is, is this worth doing? Because I'm not getting the return. And, and it's not even monetary. It's just that I don't know if anybody's actually catching on. Now, Anchor has some metrics and you can see, but for me, the real, the, the real way that I measure that is by interactions with people. So if I put on a podcast and nobody you know, responds back in any way, shape, or form, I think I failed at that show. Mm-hmm. So that's not necessarily true, but I've had to fight with myself that instinct of nobody likes me. <laughs> and so... Uh, that's why nobody's responding and and a lot of times is that it takes also time and effort to respond back yeah and in an episode like mine where i can talk about very sometimes very heavy things there's a lot of people that are okay with me putting my dirty laundry out there but aren't ready to necessarily respond back and so you gotta learn to trust your audience in that I, i look at my numbers and they're consistent and i'm like people are there and whenever they're ready, they'll reach out. In the meantime, I'll just have to worry about recording consistently, not getting burnt out, um, coming up with topics that I think are important to me because I got to care about what's going on, and then just trusting the audience. Yeah, because I was on a, um, in this Facebook podcasting group over the weekend, and this guy... Um, I forget his name even, but he was, he supposedly was a top 100 podcast on Apple Podcasts and so on and so forth. So he was going through the um, the post, and first he had everybody drop a link. And then he was going through the post and kind of commenting and asking questions to the individuals who were participating. And so yeah. he asked me what my show was about. And I was like, you know, I, I, just, I pretty much just talk about whatever social topic, whatever tech, whatever whatever I feel like talk is what I'm going to talk about. And his response was, well, why, why did you, why would you make your, um, make it so wide, make, make the scope of what you're doing so wide that you should narrow it down? And I'm like, now, because what I'm realizing the longer I'm doing this, you have people who podcast with the intention of you know just being getting the numbers in and so they'll they'll jump on whatever's hot like right now anything that has to do with business finance money real estate you make a podcast about just strictly talking about that people will listen to it it's kind of harder to to pull people in to want to listen to your just random stories versus you know you want to make you want to learn how to make a hundred thousand dollars a month, you know that 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 catches people's attention. But I was like, no, nah, I'm not. When I started my show, and the more I learned, the more and develop, I was like, you know, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna be one of those guys that is gonna just go walk down this lane because I know I could be successful walking down this lane. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, the, the, everybody has their own approach, and I think eventually it, you have to trust yourself as well, too. I, I think one of the challenges with something like that, of like whether you should be broad or you should be specific, um, it really is, at the end of the day, an exploration of what, what are you trying to gain out of this? And 
if it's a if it's monetary and that you actually want to make a living out of it, which is a real concern for a lot of people, then you do approach it a, a different way. For me, and again, I'm only talking about what my experiences are here. I want to be as genuine as possible and hope that the business is there. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I know that that's okay for me to do because that is how I'm built in the sense that, for instance, in, the, in, my, in my real estate business, um, I put a lot of content out there that has nothing to do with real estate. If you look at my Instagram, if you look at my Twitter, if you, mm-hmm. definitely if you look at my Facebook, I post a lot that's not uh, real estate related. They get the slices of life. They get to know me as who I am. And it's not always pretty. Um, because I don't try to be one person at home and be a different person on, you know, in, in public. I try to have those people be, be as uh, similar as possible. And so I've, I've gained clients solely from the standpoint of, hey, you're a trustworthy dude. Mm-hmm. You don't seem to be doing this because you're just trying to get paid. So I have a question. Uh, would you mind uh, giving me an answer? Sure. It don't cost me nothing. Mm-hmm. And um, and then over time, people say, well, you know, I appreciate the answer to that. Here, let me, let's go out there and take a look at home. Let's go, um, you know, let me, let's, I, I would like to work with you from, from, from the standpoint of owning something. So it's, it's, you could be very specific and you can treat it totally like a business or you can go about it a different way. I think, especially with something like this, um, being genuine is a bigger drive. It's a it's a better driving factor. But it, you know, different strokes for different folks. Yeah, and I um I was listening to your podcast on the way home, and you told that ASAP fable about the fox with the grapes. And, yeah, and what I liked about it was when you when you made the point of how we. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll be after something. We'll be in search of something. We'll see it. We'll say, I want that thing. But then as soon as you realize that it's too difficult or you can't get it, it's some bullshit now. You know what I mean? Do, right. you, do you think, I know you talked about it on your podcast, but do you think that is, or are we, when we do that, are we practicing like a sort of a self-sabotage with that mentality? I, yeah, I think so. One of one of the challenges that I popping out, you know. Yeah, I think one of the challenges that I have, and and again, I'll I'll relate it to to the business that I've been that I've known for the longest time. One of the troubles that we had with the real estate market before it went bad in two thousand and eight is that money was too easy. Um, I don't know if you remember back in the day or if you, if, you, if you dabbled in real estate or knew anything about real estate at all, but from about 2000 to about 2008, anybody that wanted to get a loan for it and to purchase a house could pretty much do it, you know, get it. All you had to do was walk into an office, talk to somebody, and somebody was going to lend you some money. Mm-hmm. Now, that's different than back in the day when my parents were, were kids or when your parents, you know, where parents were were out there or your or, or older people were out there back then you had to save some money you had to have some savings you have to have a, a considerable down payment uh if if you, you know, if not outright pay cash for your home um and so 
what, by 2004, 2005, 2006, when the market was really hot, I would get a lot of people that had no business owning a home because financially they really weren't prepared that would walk into our, you know, our real estate place and say, hey, um, I've been qualified for a property, a six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollar home. I like to go out there and buy it. Um, and people would do that. Uh, people would go out there and purchase the properties. Well, eventually what happened is that we had a market collapse, right? And a lot of people lost their home. And a lot of those folks that did, took, took those kind of loss, you know, saw their, their primary uh, investment go by the wayside. Now, I tell you all of that because they at least were able to enjoy those times. They were able to enjoy those homes. They went in with the hysteria that everybody went into that we can, you can be a homeowner. But after 2008 in the market that, in the market that we all inherited after the fact, you still had a lot of people that had the same mentality but now actually had to work to get those loans, mm -hmm. meaning that they would have to, banks weren't all of a sudden just saying, hey, yeah, I'll give you, you know, $600,000 for a place, or I'll give you $400,000 for a home. What they would say is, you need to come in here with some kind of down payment, with some type of, you know, of show of goodwill that you are invested into the purchase of the home. So I don't know in North Carolina, I, I have some friends that live out there, but let's say that a good sized piece of property where you live is probably going to be around 500,000. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong. 500,000 will probably buy you a pretty nice place where you live. Mm -hmm. that right? Okay. Yes. Okay. If, if, and let's say that in, you know, I don't know how old your kiddo is, but let's say that in 10 years, she was going to turn 20. I don't know that that's right, but let's say that in 10 years, she was going to turn 20. If right now you wanted to start, if you, if you wanted to give her a head, you know, a leg up on life and say, baby, when you turn 20 years old, I am going to give you 20% uh, towards the purchase of your next home. And I want you to buy the best property around us. And that's going to be 500,000. So I'm going to have $100,000 ready for you, baby, when, when you get to be 20 years old. Now, you don't have to tell me. You just got to think about it to yourself. But would you say, I'm prepared to do that? Or would you, and also, that, no, that's over and on top of maybe she wants to go to college. Yeah. So I have to get you to college, and then I got to give you $100,000 to buy a home. A lot of people throughout the country, that is an almost impossible thing to accomplish. Yeah. Because I'm not sure that you yourself are going to want to retire one day. And in between the 20 years old and now, you still have to pay for shoes. You have to pay for food. You have to pay for housing. You have to pay for everything that goes around that. So now, you you tell her, well, babe, I can't, baby, I cannot help you with $100,000, uh, but I will get you through college. Great. Then it's on her to fund, you know, to earn that kind of money so that she could buy her own place. Is it possible? Yes, but it's very, very hard. And I think what we're finding is that as a society, we are not doing a good job of teaching kids that that is the reality that they're going to face. Yeah. And so we keep, on, we keep on telling them the American dream is to buy a home and to go to college and to be an Instagram influencer or wherever the fuck you want, you, you, you make the American dream out to be. But nobody's telling them 
this is how you're going to pay for it. And when the kids that are 18, 19, 20, all of a sudden are put into that world where they want all this stuff that they've been promised that they could get, and then they realize that it takes a shitload of work to even come close to getting some of it, mm-hmm. that's where the disillusionment comes in. Yeah. That's where they're like, well, fuck this. It, you know, it probably wasn't worth it anyways. Yeah. You know, so going back to that story, I think that that's, that is a societal problem that we have. And so I can't speak for parents, but I know that for my kids, we have constant conversations, my wife and I, about money in front of them so that they don't, they don't understand what are the sacrifices, what is our thought process as far as, you know, uh, you know where, does, where does our money come from? How does, how does mom and dad Taurus move the money around? How do we triage it? How do we use it? Why sometimes they have to say no, right? When, yeah. when they, where they want the next switch game, yeah. maybe we'll say no, you know what? Or also, hey, you guys are going to have to do chores around the house. You guys are going to have to save around the house. You guys, you know, you get money from grandparents or family members for birthdays. You better sock it away because we don't, you know, I know we look fly on Instagram, but we ain't that rich. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely, so, um, I, I, since my daughter, once she, once she got around the age where she was starting to, learn addition and subtraction in school we started to um give her money and have her use her own money and because like her grandparents would always send the send the kids these gift cards and it may be a a 50 bucks 100 bucks on this gift card and you know they just swipe and swipe and swipe and swipe swipe them until they get declined so what i did was started getting the gift cards and giving her cash and having her do the math, you know, helping her out, but having her do the math on what she wanted versus what she had and how much it would cost. And I noticed almost immediately once she understood the concept, she'd ask, she asked about something, can I buy this? And I'll say, okay, well, you have $20, you know, it costs $18. How much would it be if you own... Um, and then your taxes, how much you're going to have left. And we'll sit there and we'll work it out together. And it's like, okay, well, you probably have like 97 cents or whatever, you know, after taxes left. And so I was like, but yeah, if you want it, you have enough money to get it. And I noticed immediately she started to look at stuff and say, that's not worth it. You know, what's it, what's it, what's exactly. you, the one that has to fork out the money. Now you understand, you know, maybe I don't want this. You know, you get that concept of, not wanting to grab everything that you see because it's going to cost you something. And um, I did some work for a while with this group called Junior Achievers where we were yeah. supposed to be preparing kids for economic success. And we go out to these schools. It was a middle school we would go to and, you know, play these little different games with the kids. And one of them that I would do and the cars have different jobs on them. They don't get to pick the job. You just pick a car. And whatever that car is, that's your job. And they'll tell you how much that job makes a year. So you have people that sanitate, you know, making 45, whatever, a thousand a year. You have some engineers in the class, some doctors, some fast food workers. And then 
we have to um no before that you have them write out uh, a budget like what do they think how much do they think they're going to spend for a rent and all that type of stuff and then they compare the two and be like damn because they didn't they didn't realize okay if i want to if i want to i'm going to buy a house that's a lot would be one of the first things that I'm going to buy a house and I want a nice house. How much does a nice house cost? And I just throw out random numbers, you know, okay, you get a house, $100,000. Mortgage probably be 1200 a month and stuff like that. And the kicker was they didn't think about things like car insurance, gas for the car, their groceries, you know, but they had in their budgets where they wanted to live, what kind of car they wanted to drive, what, how much they were going to spend on clothes every month, how much they were going to spend on entertainment. They got, had all that part, but the, the, the wheels that actually make those things work and make them possible, they for, completely forgot all about that. Cable, your cable bill, do you want cable? Do you want Wi-Fi? You know, all those types of things they didn't have a concept of. So you definitely have to start educating your kids about finances early. It, it, it's really important to do that, and I'm glad that you are doing that, man. We need more parents out there that, that have that mindset instead of just focusing on what the schools are teaching them to educate them ourselves because there's a lot of things that the schools are just missing. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm right, I'm right there with you. And and here's here's the thing, though. I mean, I don't blame kids for being kids. They don't know yeah. any better. I think that's where, like you said, as a responsible parent, uh, it takes. It's 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 a good thing to to, to put out there to, to to instill in them is the fact that this household where you're living under you don't think of the dozens of bills that it takes to pay for it, yeah. right? Or even the concept of insurance, like you alluded to earlier, the fact that you are paying a monthly bill for something that you may never yeah. use. That seems like some bullshit yeah. to me, but if you don't have it. In the United States, they'll bankrupt you. And for you know, when you and I were twenty, uh, I think we're about the same age. When you and I were twenty, uh, being boys, and you know, I'm not trying to be sexist. I'm just saying, you know, you think you're inv- you're invincible. Mm-hmm. Nothing ain't ever gonna hurt you, right? Yeah. You go out. There, I I remember playing ball from like nine in the morning till like two in the afternoon. Oh, and, and just being able to keep, take off the weight—I mean, not having, not ever have to worry about maintaining my weight. Um, my whole point of that is that you know, like I said, I could do that. I was never, you know, taking into account that I was in the sun the entire time. I was never really hydrating real quick. I just wanted to play ball. But you know that there was insurance, that my parents' insurance would have taken care of me if there was a problem, and that if had I got myself really, really sick, would they have been able to pay for it? No, that's not something that kids think. But unfortunately, this generation and, and millennials get into a lot of trouble, or, or they have people you know talk shit about that group because oh they're they're entitled. But the reality is that they're inheriting a world of hurt, and if we don't prepare them as parents to at least know with their eyes open, this is what you're getting into, this is what you're going to inherit, they're going to feel it. And you and now uh, some of them will thrive, but some of them will check out. And I'm afraid that if we have way too many people that check out, then, then, then societally we are going to be at a, in a much harder place than we're currently yeah. at now. Well, well, Hugo, I really appreciate you talking to me today. I uh, don't want to hold you up forever, man. We're having a good conversation. 
we definitely going to want you to come back and do the show again. You know, I, I'm telling you, anytime that you, you know, you wanted somebody to bounce off ideas off of, I'm here for you. And if anything, I just appreciate the fact that after some quite some time of going back and forth on the Twitter machine, that we finally got the opportunity to do it in person. So I'm thankful Definitely. for you. Now, before you get out here, have any special projects or anything that you want to promote? Really, only the podcast. Uh, as far as where you can find me online, uh, I'm on Instagram under uh, Hugo Torres. It's fairly simple. Or if you can find me on the Twitter machine at Hugo's Post or the uh, or the uh, podcast, which is Hugo's Post, and that's available pretty much everywhere that you can find your local podcast. Uh, and outside of that, uh, I'm just always available to talk to good people just as long as they keep it possible. All right, y'all. Y'all go check out Hugo's Post. Definitely be worth your time. Now, you can take this information and do with it whatever you will, but remember to be the reason somebody's motivated or masturbated today. Either way, you made a difference, my <laughs> friend. Thank y'all for tuning in to the VLDI. I appreciate the VLDI. Hugo, what you got to say? Peace. All right.